This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the Everything Went Black podcast. This week, author Eddie McNamara joins us. We talk about a host of things, the least of which is his brand new novel, Brooklyn Hardcore. We talk about mental health, trauma, and New York City, specifically Brooklyn, in the early 90s. Eddie was introduced to me by Necromaniac's co-host and old friend, Mike Scandato, who has a cameo of sorts in Eddie's novel, Brooklyn Hardcore. Before we get going, I want to shout out the other horsemen of the podcasting apocalypse. Kicking the week off, we have Brandon Legion with Horror Wolf 666. Next up, Jackie Smith brings us into the necrosphere the finest metal podcast on the internet of course wednesday midweek is everything went black i return with necromaniacs alongside mike scandato and jeff Kashid. to round out the end of the work week we have spitball media formerly known as break the apocalypse hosted by Mike Scandato's brother, John Draper. Saturday, we take off. Sunday, Carl Hikara delivers Soul Knox for all things weird, macabre, and esoteric. Now, lurking in the shadows, a man who cannot be limited by a specific schedule. We have Iblis Manifestations. Brought to you by Cheyenne of the Mighty Tribax. Please share this episode if you care. Follow us on social media. And tell your friends about the show. Word of mouth is always good. Leaving a review, a star rating, helps as well. Another way you can help is by joining the Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can contribute to the show. And it gives you access to all the bonus material, and we've got a bunch of stuff going on. For $5 a month, you get the bonus material as well as early access to the shows. And for $25 a month, you can be a sponsor. I'd also like to welcome aboard our brand new Patreon members, Kevin and Marius. Welcome aboard, and I hope you guys have fun. We've got a lot of stuff in store for you. So uh, welcome to the show, Eddie. Um, 
it's really cool. I'm glad that Mike connected us. Uh, Mike and I have been friends, probably not as long as you guys have, but uh, we worked together on the everything on the uh, Necromaniacs podcast, and uh, big fan of his uh, various bands, and um, really solid guy. Yeah, he's excellent. Um, I've known him probably since 1991, I guess. He's just yeah, he's super solid dude. Um, you know, like in the in the book, actually, I mentioned uh, you know, there's no Brooklyn hardcore without. Mike Scandato and Kevin McCormick. So yeah, that's nice. uh that's the God's honest truth. Well, the first uh the, the main topic that I wanted to talk about was your brand new book, which is is currently available. Am I correct? Yeah, it's um it came out August uh 14th. It's available on Amazon, it's available on Barnes and Noble. Um, you know, it's it's a uh, you know, anywhere books are sold. A couple of bookstores are carrying it. Um, the place on St. Mark's Village Works and um, a spot in Brooklyn called uh, the Bookmark Shop. Uh, but not it's not in as many, um, you know, brick and mortar bookshops, but uh, it's, um, you know, it's, it's available on Amazon. Yeah, it's hard, you know, co- competing for uh, shelf space and all that stuff. It's, um, you know, it's, it's pretty, you know, all the, the volume of material that's out there, getting your spot on the shelf must be challenging. Yeah, especially as an indie, um, you know, I'm I'm uh, I, I'm coming from an indie publisher, and it's uh, you know, uh, bookstores don't necessarily want to take a shot on uh, you know, sort of unknown uh, commodities, especially you know something that's uh, you know tied to a subculture or um, you know not uh, you know I don't have a proven track record of best-selling mysteries, so it's you know they they have to make a living too at the bookstore, so I, I I get it. Well, the name of the book's called Brooklyn Hardcore. And uh, it's a punk rock noir, which I like. I like that that sort of uh, subgenre tag. I like that. Yeah, it's 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 something I've been wanting to do for a really long time. Um, I really thought like like there there are all these great like sort of like you know Jim Thompson, uh, James Elroy, you know noir stories, and um, you know I I kind of wanted to marry that with. Like, you know, if, if it's like a gang story or a juvenile delinquent story, like a 50s story, maybe marry that with like a 90s hardcore crew, which is something, you know, I was around a bit. So, um, you know, that uh, and that's where I got that inspiration. And I, I thought it would be a, you know, I thought it would be a good combination of things. So it just uh, for for the readers out there who, um, you know, who are listening to the show, uh, just summarize what this uh, book is about, basically, it's uh, what takes place in the '90s, right? Yeah, in the uh, early '90s, it, it's 1994, but like that—that's kind of a stand-in from anywhere between 1990 and 1994. And uh, it's about this uh, this kid, uh, this kid Jimmy Quinn. He's a boxer. He's a Golden Gloves boxer. He lives in Brooklyn, and he's part of this hardcore crew called the Graveyard Stompers. And uh, I took that from a um, a meteor song. I thought that was a great name, and it sort of sounds like a fifties gang. And uh, he, you know, he he's a boxer. He's in this crew. They kind of um, there's a younger kid. He's eighteen, and this, his best friend is skinhead Carlos. And there's a younger kid. Uh, this mob guy asked them to look out for like the kid's dad died, and he was kind of like a small like weak kid. So they uh, they just sort of introduced this kid to hardcore and. Um, and 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 the way I really wanted to do it was um, with a real story of um, a, a, a confusion show at the Crazy Country Club. In um, it was a show that took place in uh, nineteen ninety two, and I think it was uh, spring of ninety two. But in the book, it's ninety four, and it was just uh, 
you know, it was just kind of a, one of those epic uh, shows, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about, I'm, I'm talking about 31 years later. So I wanted to put that in there. I think it was Starkweather, Confusion, uh, who else was on there? Maybe Marauder was on there. And it was just this like epically insane show where like just the, you know, the, the wildest things were happening inside and outside. So I was like, I got to put this in a book. So, you know, make that happen. Yeah, Rennie, Rennie's also a good friend from Starkweather. Oh. He's, uh, yeah, he's a great guy, man. That dude is like a wealth of knowledge. And uh, we we reference him a lot on Necromaniacs as our quality control manager because um, he's one of these guys who uh, recommends things for us to talk about and also will give a running commentary on some of the things that we've talked about, you know, not publicly, but on our our, uh, our little thread that we have. So he, he's like a great storyteller and also someone who has a wealth of knowledge on music and books and movies and all sorts of stuff you know and like just just seeing that band in 92 being like you know 15 or 16 years old and seeing them without knowing them i didn't you know i didn't go i knew the brooklyn bands that were playing the show but i didn't know starkweather and uh like it just like like my head kind of exploded i was just you know like seeing what was possible in a you know in a you know, sort of extreme music band and like, you know, how, how melodic it was at times and then how like, you know, it would like take like this deathy turn and, uh, you know, it just really was kind of, you know, for any time. I mean, you listen, you know, you listen to, uh, you know, Starkweather now, it's it's still, you know, you know, ahead of its time. And it was just like, but in, you know, in the early 90s, it was just wild to witness something like that. You know, the early 90s, like in hardcore music, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like the biggest hardcore fan, honestly. It's like I was into that period pretty much exclusively and like maybe stuff from the 80s and I just sort of lost interest in it. I mean, I'm, I'm more into like metal and, you know, stuff right. like that. But the, um, but yeah, that time was interesting because, uh, you, you know, coming out of the 80s, it was like the, you know, the original style, you know, late 70s or 80s, right? Uh, you know, original style. And then. In the '90s, there was all this like cross pollination with other other styles of music, and um, I feel like the music got really progressive without losing any of its power. You know, there were bands like Integrity from from Cleveland. There's yeah. bands like Starkweather from Philly. Um, you know, Rorschach was another band from Jersey, yeah. and uh, there was like a very creative thing. You know, uh, Absolution was another band I, I, I would come to mind, or Die One Sixteen, maybe a little yeah. later on. Uh, Burn, you know, bands like that really were were trying to bring something new to uh to the subculture and then i think what was it like 95 96 97 that youth crew thing started again and things yeah. kind of took a big step back in a yeah, way. It, it kind of did like it was very weird that that people were that kids were nostalgic for 1987 in like 1995 but yeah. they were and uh, <laughs> and that and that happened and uh you know, I was uh, I was around for it, and uh, it was uh, it was really weird. But I I agree with you. I like the uh, the the negative '90s. I call it the uh, the yeah. sort of the 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 neglect and uh, you know the confusion and the dark side and that type of stuff. That was um, you know in a way I uh, I also um, I'm a metal guy first and foremost, and I got into hardcore from metal, and to me it just like seemed like very heavy metal. You know, like it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was like the the next place to go from, you know, there was like, you know, thrash and then thrash became, you know, death metal, black metal. And I didn't see a difference in hardcore. Like, I didn't understand that, you know, the Chromax were not a metal band. I thought they were just like, a, 
a super intense metal band. And uh, so I just thought it was like hardcore metal when I first started going to shows. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it took me a while to get into, you know, Minor Threat and the uh, the more punky, uh, you know, like uh, Youth of Today and stuff. And I just, I had a hard time with, with like the very positive, uh, you know, the youth, the original youth crew bands, which was, uh, you know, I just didn't, it, it, it didn't resonate as what I thought, uh, you know, hardcore was. And I guess now I would, uh, I would say it's kind of like street metal, right? You know, that like early nineties hardcore sound is, is very more than crossover. I think it's, it's almost entirely in the realm of metal, but there was a, uh, you know, there was the, the attitude was not a metal attitude. I think it was a more DIY, more punk attitude, but the music, you know, it, it's almost interchangeable. Funny, you know, Chromag's and Agnostic Front, like there's like their their first albums for both of those bands were definitely more like in that punk, like hardcore sort of vibe. But then each of their second records, or or for example, um, you know, Best Wishes by Chromags, it's right. it's a thrash album. And then Cause for Alarm by Agnostic Front, you know, I mean it was written by basically, you know, Pete Steele, the, the yeah, legend. Exactly. You know, and that's the first agnostic front record i heard was cause for alarm and i was listening to like slayer and metallica and exodus and that sort of stuff at the time and uh when i when someone played me that and there and i was like oh yeah i can get behind this you know this is, it's like guitar solos and like you know the drum the drums are these like super thrashy you know beats and everything like that and uh and i was like oh yeah you know metal and hardcore like they're very similar but then culturally they're completely different though you know what i mean yeah. you go to a hardcore show and then you go to a metal show and there's like they're like night and day really you know what i mean yeah absolutely and especially at that time too i think it was uh you know in the in the early 90s there was such amongst hardcore people there was such a uh not not everyone but there was a almost a, like people turned their backs on metal like they uh they grew up as metal kids and they lived their whole lives as metal kids and then all of a sudden you know they um you know they they, they decided that they were gonna you know punch long-haired kids in the head for no reason and uh that was uh that was lame and it was uh you know but it wasn't definitely and and musically again like you know uh you know if, if you're at a biohazard show and you're like you know trying to like hit a metalhead you know it's it's you know it, that's a metal band as far as i'm concerned you know so it's it's uh, i don't know it's a little goofy yeah. so this is the backdrop for brooklyn hardcore this this yeah. sort of world this um more intense kind of negative vibe and then this uh it's almost like uh the lords of flatbush in like the mid mid 90s early to mid 90s i guess yeah, right like that's the kind of thing i think yeah. uh like the richard price's wanderers is something yeah. that uh, in inspired it um and a little bit sort of like train spotting where it's like it's a group of people in a certain time and um so it is it's south brooklyn it's the early 90s and these kids are you know they're not necessarily good people they're sort of like you know um thugged out hardcore kids and they're they're very violent and uh you know there's uh but you know it's like it's like one of those things where it's it's you know the 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 city in the early 90s was very violent there were there were 2400 murders a year and i think there were 400 last year you know so it was you know it was much more violent than the world now so um you know i i, I think it was important to make the characters sort of reflective of the time um, you know, like it's it's the AIDS years, it's the crack years, it's uh, you know, uh, it just just you know, kids are just getting robbed all over the place for you know, jan sports and sneakers, and you know, I, I incorporated a lot of that because that was you know, like where I lived. If I had to go to a show, I had to get back to Marine Park, Brooklyn, which is like a bus to a train, and uh, you know, if I'm if I'm, 
getting back uh if i'm going back from like lemores or the crazy country club i'm taking the bus from pensonhurst and i'm gonna get you know i'm gonna get uh fucked with by guidos and if i'm coming in from the city uh you know i might have to take the train at the junction and i'm gonna get some hoodie kids are gonna push up on me so it was you know uh, i used a lot of that as inspiration for the uh for the book you know to make it to make it at least uh feel authentic and i think you know a lot of people that resonated with them um you know, as much as anything, the, uh, the sort of atmosphere of the early 90s. Also, just the difference between like like downtown shows at like CBs or something or ABC No Rio versus like shows that might have taken place out at Lemoore's too. I mean, there's a different, there's definitely a difference, you know, in those atmospheres as well. Yeah, I, th- I think, I think you know, um, like an ABC No Rio show was, was punk kids and, uh, you know, a show at... Um, you know, say Bond Street or the Wetlands or, uh, you know, uh, CBs uh, in sort of the mid 90s. And it was people who were they were they were seeing kids. They were, you know, uh, whereas in Brooklyn, like there was maybe half of it was seeing kids. But then the other half are people who were just there for the chaos, I think, you know, and and, and I knew a lot of people like that. You know, uh, they weren't I mean, they they, you know, they they knew the records and stuff and they, uh, they knew the bands, but they, they, you know, they were there, they were there to get into a fight. They were there to get into like a, some kind of boot party, you know? And, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was like a, you know, and um, you know, that, that there's always some element of that when you have, you know, a bunch of like disgruntled young men and alcohol and drugs, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it was, it was especially prevalent then. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of paint a picture of the backdrop of the of the book, you know, and, and that's like stuff that might be alien to some people these days because, you know, just let's face it, you know, just things aren't as intense as they were back, you know, 30 years ago or, or whatever. Yeah for, sure. you know? yeah, for sure. It's 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 a much more civilized uh, society we live in now than, uh, you know, than sort of the the East Coast of the United States in the, uh, in the early 90s was a much less civilized place than it is now. So who um who published this book? How how that come about? Okay, so um Saint Rooster Books uh, published it, and they're a they're a horror publisher upstate. Uh, and the publisher is Tim Murr. He's a super cool dude. He's a he's a punk rocker. He's uh he he was really behind it. He loved it. Um, and that came about through, well, okay, so I had a I had a publishing deal with a different publisher, and he was it was great everything was going really well um it was a you know it was a publisher i liked i liked the, i liked the books they put out and then kind of like he decided that he wanted to be an imprint that was anti-woke and uh i i don't know what that is really and i didn't really want to be a part of something you know i didn't want to be signing on to some kind of political agenda so um i uh, i you know i asked to pull the book and he was really cool about it and i did and then um, a friend, of, a friend of mine, Heather Buckley, a uh, filmmaker, she uh, said, you know, um, I was explaining the situation, and she said, oh, you know, my friend, uh, my friend Tim is a publisher. Um, he would, he'd be into what you're doing. So I sent it, and you know, he read it. it took him like a couple of months, but uh, he was, you know, gave me a deal right there, and it was like a, you know, a pretty, a pretty good deal for me actually, uh, a better deal than the other one actually. And I didn't even have to negotiate. He just made me like a super cool offer, and. Uh, and that yeah, it worked out really well. It kind of fell in my lap uh, through a friend, but uh, that's that's what happened there. Yeah, there was no real drama getting this deal. Now, how was the editorial process on this? I mean, you know, you know, most you know, some people don't realize that you know an author writes a book, 
And it's not just this one monolithic stream of consciousness that comes out. There's also like an editorial component to it where you have an editor and, you know, they go through and make recommendations. Like, how is that? Like, how how close is the final version of the book to, say, your manuscript? Um, I, I, really different. Uh, I'd say the original the book is 225 pages. The original manuscript was probably like... 600 and i just went on in different tangents like there was a whole relationship tangent there was a whole more of like a mob tangent um and i went in a lot of different directions um with modern things and it seemed a little unfocused and uh you know the editor was able to um focus me more and you know stick with the 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 flowing story of like the graveyard stompers crew they they kill a nazi and there's repercussions and then then it comes 20 years later like in almost like the current uh world so that was like the the through line i was using instead of all these tangential things so we did uh it was a lot a lot of was done in editing um you know i uh i think i have three other books based on the other the other stuff i was writing but um but for this one we really uh yeah we really sort of narrowed it narrowed the scope of it uh to you know this 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 one story it's much easier to follow yeah that'd be cool if you could have like this series that's sort of in the you know your universe your your brooklyn hardcore universe you know <laughs> yeah i think that you know i have to stop killing people off but i think that might uh you know that that might not be the worst idea you know i um i do have a few published short stories in um you know in like literary crime journals and uh it's it it deals with this sort of uh you know this time and place and uh these type of people so yeah i, I guess there is a, a a bkhc universe out there richard price and crime and all that so is that is that like um like that genre that crime genre is that is that you know primarily what you i, I know i know your other book is not not a crime book but like is that the direction that you think you're going with in your uh your writing career yeah i, I think so i uh, um i think uh crime possibly true crime but um i do like crime fiction uh, like especially literary crime fiction or really um you know powerful uh old pulp um you know um yeah i really love that stuff it's you know i i, I read it for enjoyment and i just i tear through these books i'll sit down and just you know uh, blaze right through it so that's uh that's where i i feel comfortable doing that i uh you know because like i i like a story about the bad guys you know and it's kind of hard to do that with uh you know with traditional literary fiction where, you know, uh, you, you just really can't do that. You have to write like a, a, a beautiful sentence story about, you know, a divorce uh, between, uh, you know, upper middle class people and writers or something like that. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm much more interested in, you know, uh, darker things and uh, bad, bad characters. So that's, you know, I think crime and uh, horror are where I'm going to, you know, uh, find the spot. Do you have a couple of horror stories in you too? Yeah, my wife and I actually we just started something, and it's uh, I'm really excited about it. Uh, she's a writer. She's uh, she's been a magazine writer for forever, and she's a she's a freelance writer now. And we're uh, we're actually working on uh, a horror piece uh, that's sort of uh, what would I say? It's it's a it's a satanic panic piece, and. Uh, you know, it, it, it takes place at that time, and it's sort of about a true crime podcaster who takes on a satanic panic case and gets the person 
out of jail, you know, like uh, gets, uh, you know, lawyers into it and the person is freed and then the repercussions of that. And was that a novel or, or like a novella or like, you know, is, this, is that sort of thing? Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a novel, probably on the, on the shorter end of a novel, probably, you know, around 200, 225 pages type of thing. Um, you know, like, uh, I like them quick. I don't want to, I don't want to go on forever with, uh, with, uh, you know, I like these, the quick stories and, uh, just, just uh, you know, stay with the one focus. How, how much do you outline your work? You know, it's, um, you know, different different authors have different processes for doing their 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 work you know so do you, are you an outline guy and you fill in sort of everything or you know how, how does that work for you i am i'm a i'm an outline guy and i'm a, a notebook guy like an actual you know a, a pen and a, a little uh pocket notebook guy and i'll uh i'll sort of sit there uh, i'll have lunch and I'll, I'll take notes about scenes um that i really think you know, need to be included in this book and sort of then that becomes the outline and then the outline sort of becomes unwieldy then it starts you know it's uh so it'll be an outline but there'll be like paragraphs of notes and it's uh you know and i i i can i can buzz through a whole notebook with just um you know what i'm gonna do in 200 pages i could i can you know outline a whole notebook in that and just you know and just have to be uh, not precious about cutting things that uh, you know that don't fit the story that aren't serving the story. No, no matter how cool it is, you know, like there's a lot of things I want to include uh, in Brooklyn Hardcore, but it wasn't if it wasn't serving the story, I decided I would cut it. So with that said, like that, yeah, you you probably had, were pretty good with notes though from your editor then, right? As far as like you know cutting things and all that. Yeah, um, I um, you know, I had, I had done recipes for magazines for a long time, and I was the uh, I was actually the penthouse uh, dating columnist for a while. Really? Yeah, wow. yeah. It's called the scoundrel. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. I have a ridiculous life, and uh, so I'm really like, and uh, again, my wife is, uh, you know, she's a journalist and an editor, so I'm really good with, with notes from an editor. I, I will get right on it. I will get it done. I will get it right back to them. I, uh, you know, I, I I treat it like work. I don't treat it like something that's. Uh, you know, entirely precious, unless it's something they're completely wrong about, which, you know, will happen uh, from time to time. Uh, and, and that's sort of uh, almost like a falling out uh, I had with the, 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 the first person who was editing the book. He was, uh, he thought I was being too, uh, I don't know, he, he, he wanted me to use words that people back then didn't use, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, and it was kind of, uh, he was like, well, you know, wouldn't they use the N-word? I'm like, no, they wouldn't. And, uh you know, and that that kind of was a. I was just like, that's a that's a hard no for me. You know, because it, it really, you know, that wasn't like that's not what I'm. You know, that's not the story I'm telling. That's not you know, like, you know, that's not yeah, that's not my story. So you yeah you I know that you have one other book that there you have yeah. two two books currently published in a bunch of short stories, right? Yeah. Okay. Toss your own salad. What's that one all about? Yeah. yeah <laughs> you, it's got a nice catchy title to it, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 that's the most ridiculous thing. Um, that's like, uh, yeah. How, how do I even explain that? I was. Uh, well, can, can I backtrack a minute and uh, do? Yeah, a yeah. Little, go ahead and do a Please. little. Uh, okay, so I. Uh, so I got I, I graduated college in 1998, and I um, with a degree in English and history, and I end up uh, working for this newspaper group in Brooklyn, um, doing advertisements, and it's just like this dead end job. And I'm sleeping on my parents' couch and there's, you know, these, these horrible springs are, you know, like kind of like digging into me. And uh, 
I'm like, this is just, I, I have to get a real job. So I, um, I took every civil service test, uh, you know, the fire department, uh, U.S. Customs, uh, you know, sanitation, environmental protection. And um, I, I took the Port Authority police test and I didn't know what a Port Authority police officer was. But, um, you know, I, I heard they made decent money and uh, it seemed like an all right job. So I, uh, I took that and got called for that. So I ended up, uh, you know, which, which is, was really odd for me at the time. I mean, I was just like, uh, you know, sort of like a, a regular rockabilly shows. I was playing in a rockabilly band. I played in, you know, a ton of hardcore bands before that. And, uh, and then I, you know, I uh, moved to Seagirt, New Jersey to stay at the uh, National Guard barracks and become a, Port Authority cop, which is just, you know, it's, it's the strangest thing. I worked at the Holland Tunnel for two years after that, uh, you know, uh, making, doing nothing really watching traffic go by. And, uh, and then, then, then 9-11 happened and, uh, I, uh, I got down there and, uh, that was, that was a wild step. Yeah. And that was, that was like my, I got, I got hired in 99. So 9-11 is, yeah, it's two years after. And, uh, so I, you know, I got there at like, just as it went down, uh, no, a little bit after the buildings had gone down, and I uh, stayed there until I was assigned there to a rescue recovery, and I was there from September 11th to May 31st, uh, and it was it was uh, you know every day like 12 or 16 or 20 hours, but usually 12, and uh, every day for that that amount of time, um, you know, for nine months, and. Uh, and that uh, that sort of uh, changes your perspective on things, and um, that, that's I, like I can't even imagine what that that every day must have been like a like a nightmare, man. You know, I, that that especially during in that location, you know. Yeah, it, you know, it, and and I didn't realize that at the time, but it legitimately was. It was legitimately like, you know, and I am a horror movie fan. I will watch. I watch. I will watch the gory of things, and nothing, you know, nothing can prepare you for what that's like uh you know in real life um and 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 you don't and you don't realize after the, you know it, it's it's shocking at first it's 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 overwhelming and then um then you get used to it because it just becomes like you know it this you, you clock in at you know 6 p.m and you clock out at you know 8 a.m and you know what what you know what you're doing is uh you're doing you know there was no rescue after the first day so it's it's recovery and uh it's you know sometimes it's friends sometimes it's someone you knew uh you know sometimes you just um you pull out the wallet in the in a guy's pants to get his id and you see a picture of his family and it's just like it fucks your head up it just you know and i didn't realize it until i um uh, i got hit in the face with a piece of rebar from uh, one of the grappling machines was pulling it up and it like broke my nose gave me a concussion and i got uh i got a few days off and before that there were no days off. So I was just, just in the grind of this, uh, you know, this, this sort of world trade center grind. And then I was home and, you know, my wife worked a nine to five. So she was at work. And then I was at home thinking about for the first time, uh, kind of what was going on because I wasn't just so exhausted to go to sleep, you know, before it was, it, while I was working there, like you do your shift, you, you know, go home, sleep, you come back. And I had some time, to think and it really um it was a it, you know it it, it, it was life-changing i um you know i was driving my car one day to a, a medical appointment to to you know to get cleared to go back to work and um 
uh, you know, I felt like I was dying and I, you know, I didn't realize it then, but it was, uh, I thought I was having a heart attack and I, I felt like I was veering, you know, um, on the FDR and it was, a uh, it was a panic attack it was my first panic attack and, uh, first of many. Um, and, you know, and that was like maybe like January or February of '02, and, you know, and something had totally changed to me when I went back, it, you know, I was not even that early that early on you know just a few months i was already different and you know as the years went on it um i didn't really i did the thing where i pretended like nothing was happening and just sort of like you know tough it out and and stick through it and uh that that was probably the worst thing to do because uh you know i uh i didn't seek treatment or help until 2005 and that was uh that was a that was a mistake because i think i developed some uh you know, some safety behaviors and got used to a certain level of misery and panic attacks that, uh, that I could have probably avoided if I had in 2002, after having that panic attack, you know, decided to speak to a, a qualified therapist. Well, you know, the culture that we live in, especially, you know, we're going back, you know, 20 some odd years, uh, getting help for that sort of thing was not really in the discussion with a lot of people you know and, and it's um easier said than done i guess back yeah. then you know yeah, absolutely and it was just like you know and then like it's just like i was not a therapy person and then i was like on top of it they had like group therapy but it was like with other cops and it's like with your boss so like you know if i'm with my boss uh you know i'm not i'm not i'm with anybody from work i'm not saying anything i'm just like everything's great yeah um you know tons of overtime uh you know maybe i could put a down payment on a place like just just like these like you know really wrote corny answers uh but you know uh and now i know you know later that everybody was sort of faking it in the same way like everyone who was in the room um we had these mandatory group therapy sessions you know um all these guys and they were all doing this like tough guy front but now you know i talked to them and we text and you know we were all uh like people were saying like oh, i can't believe that mac is so chill like you know that guy's really got under control and i was just like you know i felt like i was falling apart and i thought they were the ones who were you know sort of like held together and uh yeah it's just it's with the you know we had construction guys and they were you know they, they weren't going to start opening up either and uh you know they were they were going through the same stuff they were working the same uh you know the, the, they were doing the same job as us and it was uh you know, it, it, it took a lot of years until uh, people got comfortable, um, you know, I guess culturally. Uh, I think it, you know, it, it took really the uh, probably the, the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war with those guys uh, coming back with PTSD and needing treatment for other people to even consider that they might have something similar you know, and, I, and they might also need treatment. Now, how did you locate the resources to help you get through this? Like that, you know, in 2005, was it like on your own or was it something through the Port Authority Police Department or, you know, a city thing? Yeah, um, well, I, at first I was uh, I was living in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and I just looked at the closest person to me. And there was a therapist like two blocks away from me. And I went to that guy because I didn't want work to know yet. And uh, he was worse than useless. Uh, so that was uh, so then I did let work know that I was having a having issues and uh then you know they they had set me up with uh with the counselor and then there was um with the government actually did something really great um there was a uh, the world trade center uh, medical monitoring program and uh, they have it in bellevue there's a few in brooklyn there's one uptown 
um, you know, they're all over the place, some in Jersey. And uh, they have a, a, you know, a fully staffed program where you go for a yearly, you go for a yearly medical exam. You do what they do a full physical lung test, uh, x-ray in your lungs, and they do a psychological. And uh, they set me up with a therapist who was actually, you know, um, you know, helpful for me. He, you know, I, 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 I could say that uh, that was, you know, um, and that, by that point I had retired from, uh, I was able to retire uh, due to 9-11. And uh, I, you know, I was set up with this therapist and he was, you know, actually helpful. And, uh, you know, everything I, you know, I sort of thought that, you know, I thought it was like, because the first guy, the first guy I went to in Brooklyn on my own was a bullshit guy. And uh, like he, we were just trying to deal with symptoms and he asked me to like, tell me about, tell him about a day, you know, like just like a work day. And I did, and the dude started crying on me and, uh, you know, and I just felt like such a weird freak that like, I was like, I got to keep this to myself. I can't talk about this to people. This is really, you know, and I think he kind of, you know, a bad therapist, man, you know, it's, that's, you got to watch out for those ones. That was, was there any kind of like medication involved in any of these, uh, you know, this, this, this therapy or was it yeah. all just talk therapy? I did, I did talk therapy. Um, I did, uh, the first one was I did CBT and then I went to, um, talk therapy where, um, I actually talked about the things I didn't want to talk about. Uh, but yes, medication from 2005, I was, uh, I was, I've been on SSRIs since 2005 and I've been on benzos since 2005 and uh, much less on the benzos now. Uh, I've weaned off a lot and, uh, but the, uh, I'm, I'm still on an SSRI, but I've had to, you know, I've had to sort of tweak that um, over the course of, uh, you know, the last uh almost 20 years uh but yeah i i, I still am on medication and i i found that that actually uh that, that that definitely did something i think you know um just having like a you know 10 out of 10 panic attack and just knowing that i had a xanax that i could take i didn't even have to take it but just to know i had it actually really helped and that's you know with, with those situations and uh yeah i'm, I'm a you know, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about medication, but for me, uh, it's something that um, I think was very helpful. I mean, definitely, it, when it's applied in the right circumstances, it's you know, I mean, I know people that need to be on medication because yeah. there's there's a situation that they're they they just can't you know function without it. So, I mean, you know, in extreme cases like this, definitely, it's not you know, it's something that be, would be required, I imagine. Yeah, and um, yeah, I think it was you know, it's like. I wouldn't have left my apartment if it was just my, you know, just sort of my symptoms. I would have just stayed in my apartment and, you know, uh, I got, I got a small pension and I would have just tried to hustle, you know, a job from home and, uh, you know, like whatever I could do. And, um, but you know, it, it, what was good is the, uh, the, the therapist I was working, the talk therapist I was working with, um, my wife, uh, again, she's a, she, uh, she's something else. She's really, she's really great. And she was like, look, I'm going to come to your therapy with you once. And I want to meet your therapist and I want to know what the plan is because I want you to get better. And, um, so it was after I was retired. Um, and, uh, what she had done for me was she put me in culinary school because that's something I always wanted to do, but I didn't, uh, I didn't, you know, sort of have the confidence to do it. And she, you know, she put me in culinary school. And, uh, so then, you know, afterwards, I ended up with like a, you know, like a private chef job. Uh, 
So, you know, that was kind of like, just like you go to somebody's house and cook. That was pretty easy. And, uh, but she was like, I want you to do more. Like, you know, I want you to, you know, be creative. And, uh, so her and the therapist held me to, uh, you know, say three things I wanted to do, uh, and, you know, and, and, and complete those. So like, they could have been anything. So I said, okay, so three things I want to take a writing class. I want to start a food blog and I want to cook two days a week at the, uh, the soup kitchen, uh, Holy Apostles. It's the biggest in New York. And, um, and I did it. And those three things absolutely changed my life. Wow. That's uh yeah, that that's uh, actually I, <laughs> one of the things I was going to ask you is how you got into writing. And I guess this is this is like the, you know, the, the, the beginning of that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, I think. Well, I, I mean, I always was. uh I think the first thing when I was a kid, like other kids wanted to be like Daryl Strawberry or Dwight Gooden or like Eddie Van Halen. And I was like, who wrote the Twilight Zone? I want to be that guy. You know, I was uh, like Rod Sterling. I just was like blown away by like I thought the guy was a genius. So I was a I was a big reader as a kid. And then. um you know, uh, I did a fanzine with uh, Justin Brennan uh, from Indecision um, about uh, extreme music. It was called Extreme Zine with an X. Uh, it was a uh, with the early '90s, and um, it was about uh, bands in Brooklyn who, you know, we thought were, were not getting enough uh, sort of, you know, play anywhere. Like people weren't talking about, you know, what was ha happening in Brooklyn. So he was in indecision i was in this band purge uh you know mike was in confusion there was a you know rich dark side uh we interviewed them we had confusion we had dark side in there we had uh probably like step aside and you know our own bands and we would do brooklyn show reviews so i was you know i was writing uh that was in high school so yeah justin and i were doing that then and then uh mike scandato again came on in uh in the second issue uh in uh, 1994 and uh he he brought a lot more uh you know the uh death metal stuff and that was really you know that was kind of interesting but i was always you know even even when i was a cop i uh i co-wrote uh a couple of screenplays uh with uh and and you know i knew someone who was making the films so i was always into that but i uh i i, I kind of needed a class i needed the structure of you know how to actually go about writing short stories and i thought that's what i wanted to do was the uh you know the short stories and you know the blog was just I was I was a private chef I was I was developing recipes and I was like well why don't I just you know uh, develop some recipes on this blog and uh, you know then I went I went ahead and did that and that kind of that kind of took off and that was uh, that was Tosh on salad that was the uh, that was the name of the blog and it was like this like you know I would kind of do jokey it was like this real jokey kind of kind of ridiculous uh, style of writing but the recipes were good and. Uh, yeah, and that 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 kind of took off, and I didn't like. I wasn't even looking for a book deal, uh, but an editor from uh, St. Martin's Press emailed me for a meeting, and I showed up. You know, he's like, "Oh, come come for a meeting at the um, uh, what, what's that? You know, it's like the, uh, at the the Flatiron Building, and it's like, uh, you know, I'm in some office in the Flatiron Building, and there's a guy offering me a book deal. I didn't know why I was there, and I'm like, "Yeah, sure, yeah, let's let's do it, yeah, yeah." And it was uh you know, that was like a really random, but awesome, uh, moments, you know, and, and, and that goes back to, you know, my therapy session of, yes, I want to take a writing class. Yes. I want to do a food blog and, you know, the, the, the soup kitchen, the soup kitchen, I didn't become a professional soup kitchener, but you know, it was, uh, it, you know, I think it's a good thing to do. So that, that's what the Tosh Your Salad book is like a collection of those uh, blog entries. Is that what that is? It, it, well, I, I got the deal off the blog entries and like maybe, uh, 
a third of it are are the uh, are the old blog entries, and then I was just uh, you know I sort of had they gave me an advance, and they were like you know you have like a year to come up with uh, you know hundred new recipes, and you know and make the write ups funny, and uh, you know uh, make it appealing to you know people who it was a vegetarian cookbook, and they're like make it appealing to sort of like tattooed moms, and uh, you know and that's kind of uh, <laughs> that's that's kind of what ended up happening. So you know. Um, you know, which, which was a, you know, and it's, it's on a, you know, it's on a, it's on a big four publisher and, you know, I ended up in like people magazine and like, it was, it was a, it was a weird trip. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to go that route. I didn't think that like, you know, if you asked me at 19 years old, would I be a, you know, a cookbook author in people magazine and on TV with Lydia? I, uh, I didn't think that would have happened, but you know, um, it's a, we reinvent ourselves in this life. It's a long, uh, it's a long process. Now, some of the recipes are they? Are they you know some of them meatless or vegan or you know meat? What what's the, like? Is it a, a, a cross section of different types of eating, or is it specific to anything? Well, it's 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 all vegetarian, and okay. uh, most of it is most of it's vegan, but uh, not all of it. And it's uh it's kind of eclectic recipes, and then it's like uh, you know, I would say like one of the some of the base is Mediterranean cooking or Italian cooking, but, um, you know, I tried to, you know, get a little, um, get a little interesting with it where I would do like a, like a tikka masala pasta sauce and, you know, sort of do that one, you know, and it's just like, it just fucking works. It's just, you know, say, uh, it's just kind of like a, you know, a city mashup of, you know, like anybody, you know, like, a like the kind of food you would, you know, get as takeout, like how do you make it at home? And how do you make a vegetarian? I should pick that up because I'm always looking new twists. In, oh yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, hook you up for one. I think it's a, uh, I think it's like out of print right now. I think we sold. Oh that. wow, okay. Yeah, I think we sold out the like. It's like sometimes it pops up on Amazon and sometimes it's available on you know some of the used sites, but it's like it's like weirdly out of print. Like we went really? through the. The, yeah we went through the first run but they didn't do a second run of it so uh huh. you know, yeah it's it's uh it's it's weird economics uh when you're on a big publisher like that it's uh it's a it's a whole different thing the expectations are you know the expectations are gigantic uh whereas now i'm i'm, I'm on an indie publisher and uh you know it's uh you know the the expectation is like you know my my, my publisher is happy when we're talking about numbers he's like you know books doing great you know people are buying the book and you know um that's really nice to hear because uh you know the other way it's like everything is terrible and you know you only sold this many today even though even though the numbers are you know much bigger the other way uh it's you know it's it's just a it's a completely different you know i guess it's like kind of like a band being on a, a major label versus uh you know an indie i guess you know i guess it's a similar type thing with the expectations oh how I heard that like Amazon reviews actually help quite a bit with uh with you know smaller publishers and that kind of, that kind of thing. They do, and uh, if uh, if anyone listening to this has read my book, uh, whether you liked it or didn't like it, please leave an Amazon review for me. Um, they they do because then uh, once you hit a certain amount uh, on Goodreads and Amazon, more people start seeing your book as a recommended book. So I have the, the a strange thing that's happened and and, and uh. The people who are very enthusiastic about my book are people who come from uh, a music scene background, or you know, people who uh, who are interested in New York in that time period. But they're not necessarily people who read crime fiction books. Uh, 
So yeah, that would, uh, <laughs> I need more, the more Amazon reviews, the more, uh, the crime fiction people, the people who are reading like Elmore Leonard, you know, I want them to see that, you know, this thing exists. So. Yeah. So that's the thing I want to, I want to make clear to everybody is that even though this does take place in, um, in like a music background, like, uh, the, the, the setting is within a hardcore scene. It's very much a crime fiction book. It's not about like what band some guys in or that kind of thing, you know? Right. Right. That's like the catalyst, you know, and like sort of the background of the characters, but yeah, that's, uh, that's not the, the main focus of it. It's yeah. The, it's uh you know it's a crime story and that's the that's the you know it's it's a it's a bleak noir crime story and i think that's the that's the focus of it and uh and i think oh it's, it's interesting because you know i know people who bought it for like i you know people will email you know i, I get emails all the time people are like you know I, I you know like chapter three was awesome like you know it was like they 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 they're like they love the nostalgia aspect of it and then they're like but then i gotta attach your characters and i i you know, I couldn't put the thing down and I can't believe this happened. You know, so that's like, like, that's like the best feeling in the world to have somebody like, you know, read your book and then want to discuss it with you over, uh, you know, find you on social media and then want to discuss it over, uh, you know, over messages. I think that's, uh, you know, that's, that's the coolest. I, I got to make sure Rennie knows about this because he's a, um, a big crime reader as well as a horror reader. Like he's, well, uh, he's you know, his band's in the book. Uh, his, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're they're in they're in there they're uh you know they uh they are mentioned and uh you know there's a a little bit of a uh, stock weather review so yeah please please do yeah definitely gonna gonna make sure that he knows about this because like i said you know he and i always um you know we exchange a lot of weird fiction stuff a lot of horror a lot of like he you know i, I like reading crime fiction myself you know like you mentioned richard price and you know jim thompson and you know that sort of stuff is like um you know I read a fair amount of that, but Rennie is like way that's, I would say he's 50, 50 with like horror and crime, or okay. crime uh, writing. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's a, yeah. Then, uh, yeah. You might want to check it out. Cause it really, you know, yeah, it is. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a noir, it's a hardcore noir, you know, if, uh, if that's a thing, this is it, you know? And uh, yeah, I think that's, it, it's really rooted in that. I mean, it's sort of, it's a fatalistic book. It's, uh, you know, and there's, there's mob stuff. There's uh, sort of petty crime stuff. There's gang stuff, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's, you know, and, and, and I, I think it's way more of a, a crime book than a, than a, say a hardcore book or a nineties New York book. I think, you know, if I had to classify it. Yeah, no, that, absolutely. So, you know, anyone out there who's like, into crime definitely check it out is there do you have any kind of social media presence that you want to talk about like where people are going to follow you get updates on the book and anything that's um you know any any other forthcoming uh material you might have being published yeah um i have a um instagram it's at toss your own salad one word toss your own salad and um uh, i am eddie mcnamara on uh, on facebook and uh I'm on Twitter, but like, I don't, I don't really ever use it. Uh, so like, X. Well, you know, yeah, X, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, so, yeah. so like either Facebook or Instagram would be, you know, would, would be a good, you know, a good place to, uh, to find, to find me and link up. Well, thanks a lot, Eddie. Um, yeah, guys out there, if you're in, into this kind of thing, definitely check it out. Um, I'm going to post a link along with this episode to the, um, Amazon where you can, where you can purchase this book. And uh, definitely uh, keep your eye out for it. And uh, I'd like to thank you for being generous of your time, Eddie. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it.
Thank you so much. I really, I really appreciate you having me. Thank you for letting me come on the show. All right. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Have a good night. All right. You too. Bye.